ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. In the ancient world, sometime around the year 2300 BC, there was a mighty king by the name of Sargon who ruled from the city of Akkad in Mesopotamia in modern-day Iraq. Sargon's armies conquered the nearby cities and brought them under his rule. Such was Sargon's power, he boasted that he had become king of the whole world. But a quarter century after Sargon's death, his grandson, Naram-Sin, found the world a less congenial place. The ancient histories record that Naram-Sin attacked the sacred places, which brought the curse of Akkad upon the land. The farmlands dried up and produced no grain or wine. The conquered cities rebelled, and his empire simply collapsed. Now, in recent years, scientists have found sediments, mineral traces, and other evidence that indicates that at this time there was indeed a fierce and prolonged drought across much of the world that brought famine not only to the Middle East, but to India and China as well. And the results, as you might expect, were catastrophic. Mass starvation, terrible violence, social and political upheaval. Peter Frankopan is back on Conversations today. Peter says we can take this as a warning, a lesson in how mighty civilizations can be undone by sudden climate shifts. Peter is Professor of Global History at Oxford University, and he writes books that transform the way we see history. He did it with his bestseller, The Silk Roads, and Peter's done it again with a new work that shifts our understanding of how planetary forces have shaped human history. Peter Frankopan's book is called The Earth Transformed, An Untold History, and he's in Australia as a guest of the Sydney Writers' Festival. Hello, Peter. Welcome back to you, sir. Richard, it's a, it's a pleasure to, to be back in your studio after six or seven long years. Indeed. But, um, indeed. Nice to see you. So much of your book is informed by recent science. Could a book as revelatory as this have been written 20 or 30 years ago? No. I mean, I, I, it's probably slightly exaggerating, but I'm part of a generation of history writing that is probably going through the most important revolution since the invention of writing scripts. We, we had, before people learnt how to write or, or, or thought about how to, to write things down, which are typically by bureaucrats wanting to record levels of tax and to have a good administration, before that in history, we have to rely on archaeology only. Uh, now, um, historian, well, for the last three, four, five thousand years, historians have had to read other texts to see what people were thinking. But now we've got a whole set of tools that allow us to have precision about um, almost everything we look at in the past. So, for example, uh, 30, 40 years ago, if you were writing about migration of Huns into Europe or of people across through Southeast Asia into Australia, you'd have to rely on, on fragments of evidence. Now we have genomics, we have linguistics, we have lots of climate-related materials that allow us to see in sort of three, di- three dimensions uh, what's happening where and when. And those, those revolutions of the sciences completely change history. I mean, in, in the UK, if you study history, you typically pick a humanities route when you're at school or university, and you kiss goodbye to chemistry, biology, let alone ever seeing plant sciences or disease histories. But that the volume and the scale and the accuracy of the new tools that we have is completely, totally mind-blowing. In addition to the things you're talking about, we have things like dendrochronology, you know, measuring what's in the evidence in tree, tree rings. rings right. Tree rings, 
ice core samples, uh, sedimentary evidence on the edge of dead seas in the world and the like. Yeah, you can you could the the the, the Yersinia pestis bacterium that underlies plague. We can tell before the big the Black Death is the big event that sort of devastates not just Europe but the Middle East. And in fact, new evidence from genetic materials suggesting it reaches deep into West Africa and into China too. Um, we can tell now by decoding and uh, the the DNA sequence that that about thirty years before the Black Death catches, there's a big bang moment where that um, bacteria splits into four branches. And that then prompts all sorts of questions about why, which one's more virulent, virulent, why does it spread in the way that it does? And it is it provides a set of abilities for historians that are absolutely not just important, breathtaking. They, they revolutionise how we think about the past. It's, it's so exciting. I mean, I can see you smiling, but I mean, it's so exciting um, to do that. And I think that the next generation of historians after mine, after, after us, um, won't be able to do the kinds of histories that we do without including this kind of material, looking at tree ring data, which tells you about precipitation levels. Particularly trees will tell you, is rainfall consistent or, or and is there other high levels of, of aridity? It doesn't, doesn't on its own tell you something, but all these data points together uh, give, you, give you a whole new set of tools to play with. The reason why I'm smiling is because it's, this stuff is not just informative, it's also kind of delicious, and it has the deliciousness because you're dealing in deep, deep time. In fact, your story begins at the beginning of time with the formation of the Earth itself. The long history of the Earth, of, you know, which humans have been scuttling about for the tiniest fragment of its history, is the Earth changes again and again and again. So, hypothetically, if we had a time machine in the studio, Peter, and we could flip the dial to go back to any point in the Earth's history, how often will we need a space suit in order to <laughs> arrive at the Earth at that point? Well, you, you must have this, Richard, right? There, there are quite often you'll get asked, you know, which period of history you most like to go back to. And I can tell you as a historian, you, you never want to go backwards in time, right? You always want to be either in the present or go future because, you know, we have the longest life expectancies. If you are going to go back in time, you definitely want to come back as somebody rich. And I would always say you probably <laughs> want to come back as a man. Um, because the, 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 the lottery favours you very heavily that way. But for almost all of the Earth's existence, the atmospheric conditions, the climate conditions on the planet wouldn't have supported our life form. And that is quite a sobering first starting point, I guess, when we think about the world. I wanted to write about how nature has shaped the world we live in. And I had thought, well, I'll start where the beginning of written history begins because you allow people, people write down what they thought was happening. But it seemed to me that so much of our planet is also shaped by things that have gone before us that I, you, it's worth engaging with that. For example, I'm sure most listeners will know that there have been mass extinctions in the past. In one case, through volcanic eruptions that didn't last for a few months, a few years, but for tens of thousands of years. And then the most famous one of all, the, the meteor impact that hits in Chichiclub in, in what's now Mexico, the Yucatan Peninsula, that, that knocks out the dinosaurs. The starting point is that every single life form on Earth today descends from things that survived those five mass extinctions. Right? So we've all descended from that choke point, if you like, right. uh, that where so much of human, oh, well, of, of all life was extingu extinguished. And, and we're all descendants from those species that survived these volcanic catastrophes. We're all beneficiaries. In the same way that all of us on this planet today descend from people who survived the Black Death or the Plague of Justinian or all these other big calamities. We all survived. So history, I guess, in the rawest form is 
um, that most people don't make it. Most societies don't make it, most civilizations, most animals. But you need to be evolving. You need to be changing. So I guess that that was a kind of starting point about thinking about the world from the beginning before humans, because we as a species have only been on this planet for naught point naught 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 one percent of its existence. <laughs> and I suppose... Well, we don't laugh too much, because what that should probably tell you is that if we get it all wrong, we might not survive for that much longer. Right? It would be the <laughs> merest blip then. If, you know, if we, if we disappeared tomorrow or in the next hundred years or so, we'd be the merest blip. We're the merest blip. And there will be listeners who have very strong opinions about uh, global warming, about climate change, and the role that humans are playing in that. I mean, as it happens, as, as we sit here today, we have the highest carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere for two million years, and the Earth is at the warmest it has been for 125,000 years. But um, we are the only animal um, species that has managed to transform the climate as well as the natural world around us on the scale and the speed in which we've been doing it. And I suppose that there are some salutary lessons in that. If you have a particularly strong uh, religious conviction, you might, you might try to think, well, evolution doesn't happen. Um, some people think that. But, but then you might go back to the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, where God creates the perfect environment. And the last thing he does is he puts in humans and he gives them one job, which is don't eat from the forbidden tree. And when Adam and Eve decide to eat from the forbidden tree, the punishment is environmental and ecological. And the expulsion from the Garden of Eden, which is sacred in Judaism, it's sacred in Christianity, sacred in Islam, creates a world where humans are uncomfortable. Because yeah, they, they leave the promise, they leave the, the Garden of Eden and go into an, the arid land of Canaan, don't that's they? That's right. And, and that, that warning about what happens if you transgress, if you anger the divine, if you anger God, if you make mistakes, if you live in a way that's not sustainable, this is how you get punished, has echoes in Indic cultures, in Chinese civilizations, in Mesoamerica too, which is that if you get things wrong, uh, there's going to be vengeance. And that, that curse of Akkad that you mentioned where Naram-Sin is judged to have angered the gods, is written about to say this is what happens if you are all-powerful uh, ruler who doesn't venerate, doesn't pay the right respect to the gods, you will be punished. So pressing the fast-forward button here, if we, if we uh, see that uh, meteor crash you spoke about, there was the, the meteor that famously wiped out the dinosaurs, created the space, I'm being too linear here, I know, but yeah. created the space for mammals to suddenly flourish, and with that we get primates, hominids, humans. We get agriculture around 10,000 years ago. With the advent of agriculture, do we already see humans starting to change the planet with that to, to exert a pressure, if you like, on much larger forces and climate and the like? Sometimes we think about the advent of agriculture or domestication as being a kind of lightning point, right? And actually, it's not quite so simple. The, the way in which people collect seeds or collect crops, the way in which they decide to live in, in, in regular sedentary locations or keep moving, there's, there's not a kind of single moment and there's no sort of you can't go back from that moment either. It, it's a sort of, it's about population densities. When, when there are more people, then landscapes get exploited in slightly different ways. They get used in different ways. And people sometimes have to experiment and do things uh, to try to boost their calorie levels. But about 10,000 years ago, what looks like happens is that, that demographics globally have started to rise. And that's a combination of lots of things. It's a combination of successful settlement patterns, ability to work out how to cook and use fire properly, access to water. But around about that time, there was an idea that maybe 
things like cultivation of rice in particular that, that generates methane may have some kind of small signature that you can pick up from um, from climate signals. Uh, I think that the, the margin of error is so wide to make that highly speculative. But clearly what happens around about that this time, the beginning of the Holocene, so it's a sort of moment of history where the ice age has come to an end, the earth is starting to warm and, and the populations start to rise. There are a series of transitions where for all sorts of different reasons, people are trying to use new strategies to be able to uh, maximise their opportunities. And that, that that process of engagement means that people become interested in learning new technologies, spreading kind of crops, working out how to deal with animals and how to domesticate. And the key, I guess, if you're, if you're an economic historian like I am, it's always, as today, it's your first questions you should ask are about calories, about energy, about wood to be able to heat, not just yourself, but to cook your food. And also to, to figure out that there are some parts of the world, if you were starting the game of life, that you're probably more likely to want to live in, and ones that you're probably less likely to want to live in. So places with benign, stable climates where it rains enough, better than ones where it's bone dry and you burn to death. And so those little niches, niches, niches that start to harbour the big early civilizations, like the Nile, like Mesopotamia, like the Indus Valley, like the Yellow River and Yangtze River deltas, are kind of perfect sort of cauldrons that allow larger populations to be able to function together and they draw people in. Yeah, so it's 5,000 years later after we get agricultural, thereabouts, speaking very broadly here, that the first cities arise in those places you spoke of, on the Nile Delta, in Mesopotamia, the Yangtze River and, and, and the like. Are there planetary forces at work or climatic forces at work that lend impetus to the arrival of cities at that time, like as opposed to cities arriving sooner or later in world history? I think it's demographics. Again, it's, it's population sizes, and those are directly correlated to your ability to feed yourself. Um, what's interesting about these areas that I just mentioned are they are prescribed. So they have ideal uh, bases that can support large populations, but either side of it, it's a disaster. So in the, by the Nile, if you're on the Nile floodplains, you're great. The, the rich waters come up and deposit silts and are hugely agriculturally rich, but to the other side, you've got deserts. You've got the Sahara, yes. You've, you've got, got the Sahara. Couple of, <laughs> right. There it is. Same in the Mesopotamia Well, too. you've got mountains yes. on either side, yes. right? And so what, what looks like happens is that because there is a sort of optimal amount of space that it's highly attractive for outsiders to, to move into, and once you reach a kind of critical velocity, then you can start to work out that sedentary groups or what we now call villages and towns will start to take shape as long as there's enough water for people and as long as there's enough food that you can cultivate and if you can cultivate food reliably either by picking what what happens to grow or by learning how to plant things then there starts to be the creation of things like social hierarchies because what matters is who's got the best plot right there's no re- there's no particular reason why one piece of land should be less valuable than another one but that's not the case. It's access to infrastructure, access to water, access to the fields. So when you get cities, you get kings and queens, and you also get a cast of priests very often. You've written something very intriguing there about how the climate of a civilization tends to flavour the religion of that civilization. Tell me about that. Well, religions, the priests do lots of different things. First, the, first, the, the best thing that priests in any religious uh, denomination are good at is getting themselves tax, tax concessions. That's the, <laughs> the, 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 you'll know that from your Byzantine world. Yeah. My, fa- my favourite Byzantine emperor is, the one called, is, a, is an emperor called Alexius 
Comnenus, he keeps getting delegations sent from monasteries asking for more tax exemptions. He eventually says to one, and this is about a thousand years ago, he says, if I meet one other monk who asks me for a tax concession, I'm going to personally blind them. Um, <laughs> so pre priests are very good at getting themselves tax concessions. They're also very good at codifying knowledge. And that has both for good and for bad. Obviously, uh, one reason why, why my foundations, religious foundations of priests want to codify knowledge is so they can protect their assets from, from the ruler or from the king, but also to build up their own power. And so you find in places like Mesopotamia the rise of a sort of bureaucratic, theocratic class. So they're administrators. They are able to read. They're able to write. They codify things. They write things down. They're very, very precise, a bit like any tax official or bureaucrat should be. But they're also providing explanations. They're explaining why the world is how it is. Why does it sometimes rain a lot? Why do we need to tax in this way? Uh, why do they themselves not need to be taxed? And so, so religious orders and, and cosmologies all develop alongside cities. Um, but it's not completely linear. So, for example, in, in the Indus Valley, there doesn't appear to be social inequality in the same way there is in almost every other location. And one reason for that probably is because the Indus Valley is fed from waters that come down off the Himalayas. And because the Himalayan waters carry lots of minerals, the courses of the rivers change a lot. And so it's very unpredictable about where the best place to be would be. So that means that there's no premium to have the best location on the best land that has the best anchorage and you know, closest to the river and Tigris or Euphrates. But in the Indus, it means that, that, that things work in a slightly different kind of way. In fact, in, in the Indian subcontinent, it works in a different kind of way because it's very hard to build cities. So you don't seem to find big... One doesn't find big cities in India until really the early modern era. But how does it affect the kind of god that they worship? I mean, what, god, what are the gods like... I think you're right that there's that you're more like to see a moralizing god in a certain kind of climate. In Hinduism, one of the stories is that it's unbelievably complicated. And unbelievable complication you can interpret in lots of different ways. I suppose I would interpret it to say one advantage of being incredibly complicated with multiple manifestations, multiple deities, is that you need to have priests who understand it and explain it to you. And they need to do the hard work of reading the Vedic texts, understanding Sanskrit, and then explaining it to you. And that's one way of protecting knowledge. But in, in some parts of, um, particularly northeastern China, there are no moralizing gods. So moralizing gods means, I guess, if you remember your Greek literature, you know, Zeus sends a thunderbolt from heaven and destroys men because he can't bear them. Or, or the great monotheisms like you know, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, that come from the Middle East, where their land is more arid. God is a moralizing god. Too. Right. And so the flood of Noah, for example, that's not just in the, in the Bible, again, Islam and Judaism, of course, as well as Christianity, but also you find references in the Epic of Gilgamesh in Mesopotamian texts, in Egyptian texts, about obviously a massive flood event. And the moral in all of those different interpretations is that God is punishing men who are again being annoying or transgressing or living immorally. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah are another one where, where God loses his, loses his rag and, and blows up a whole city. Uh, but you don't find that same interpretation in, uh, in part, many parts of China, partly because it, it... Well, one explanation by some clever colleagues of mine is that because the climate is much more benign, you don't tend to have massive floods or heat waves or droughts. And that, that means... And also things like de decomposition of the body. If you live in a cooler part of the world, then a body doesn't decompose so quickly. In northern China, for example, bodies are laid out in state and they lie there sometimes for a week or two because they can, because they don't get, they don't, they don't start to, to rot. And that means that your engagement with what the body means, what the birth cycle means, about what death means, about what God does, 
look slightly different. And one of the, one of the wonderful things about history is that there's no one simple answer for each corner of this wonderful world we live in. It's very, it's always having to look at the different corners and different parts and try to judge them uh, individually before trying to connect them all together. You say that the rise of the Romans as a civilization and then as an empire is associated. You don't, you don't say this is an ultimate cause, but of course, it's one cause perhaps. It coincides with a period known as the Roman warm period where the weather became pleasant, humid, crops could flourish and it made the improbable uh, event of this marginal people living on halfway down the Italian peninsula could suddenly go on to dominate the entire Mediterranean. Then we have the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century. Everyone's got their explanation for that. It's one of the old chestnuts of history. Why did the Western Roman Empire fall? In the past, the, the conventional explanation was incursions from the Huns, the Goths and other barbarians, the Vandals and the like. Gibbon famously said it was because they became a bunch of Christians and therefore they became effete and superstitious, which is non nonsense, really. Actually, when you think about it, the Western, Eastern Roman Empire continued for a very long while. What was going on in the climate at the time, though, Peter? What other things were going on in the world when the Western Roman Empire collapsed in the 5th century? The story of Rome is not so much about good conditions, but about stable conditions, right? So I guess like one's household budget... If you run year after year after year and your paycheck comes in and it's consistent, you get paid every month, you have to work out what your ability is to then have a mortgage, pay for holidays, etc., etc. That's fine. The, the shock comes when you lose your job or when something goes wrong, you don't get paid. Uh, then there's compression. And what happens with the Roman Empire is that um, the, the, the key making of Rome is... Uh, in 40, in, just after 44 BC, when Julius Caesar is murdered on the steps of the Senate. Just after that, as the assassins, Brutus and Cassius, are being hunted down by, you know, to, because justice needs to be done when you knock out a big general like that, uh, an eruption of a, of a volcano in Alaska called Okmok puts huge amounts of um, sulfates, aerosols, and particles into the air that causes the Nile floods to break down. And the Nile floods in Egypt produce huge amounts of wealth. And the shock delivers to Egypt at that time under the reign of a woman called Cleopatra, one of the most famous women in history. And Cleopatra, no one likes Cleopatra in the elites in Egypt because she's not Egyptian. Well, she's the descendant of a Greek general. And the way in which the, that, that, that her position is protected is because the Ptolemies, her dynasty, they all marry each other, not because they're having sex with each other or progenating with each other, but because they can't afford to pick out one or two of the Egyptian elite families to give them a leg up the food chain. But that shock economically means that costs of living, as we call them now, go up, inflation goes up, there's not enough wheat, so the price of wheat goes up, there's riots, there's, there's there, there, there are doubts about Cleopatra's ability to solve the problem, and there are these Egyptian families who think, here's our chance to knock her out and get more tax concessions, maybe even knock her off the throne altogether. And Cleopatra does what, what a smart ruler would do, which she looks for an alliance with the most powerful Mediterranean state at the time alongside hers, which is uh, with Rome. So she, she does a deal with Mark Antony, um, who's the darling of the Roman army. He's you know, a good-looking boy, uh, has good bedside manners, but bets wrong. And the, 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 sort of the, the, the joker in the pack is a man called Octavian, who's a little weasel, but a hugely, hugely uh, able political operator who manages to knock, knock them both over, take Egypt. And when, when he, Octavian, when he dies, renamed Augustus by the grateful Roman people, he writes in his, in, in his testimony that I found Rome in, mar in brick and I left it in marble. 
because the delivery of Egypt, which was conquered by um, Octavian or Augustus after the death of Cleopatra, opened up basically unlimited wealth because it unlimited calories and food for Rome that allowed them to spend their money on other things. And for the next 250 years, there's basically no more volcanic eruptions. Climate patterns are roughly stable. That all starts to change in about the 230s, 240s of our era. And when that happens, over the course of about 40 years, you have 26 emperors and about double that number of people trying to take the throne. Because Rome at that point goes through, a bit like British politics in the last three or four years, (laughs) of total turbulence, total meltdown. And it's because if you get the simple things wrong, if you suddenly have an economic crisis or cardiac arrest, then, then... the trigger, the trigger comes. And it's often caused by a volcano in somewhere like Alaska or Iceland erupting catastrophically, witnessed by no human being at all, very likely, that can create these powerful effects on world history, Peter. Well, I'll give you another contemporary example, right? But in 2008, there was a terrible um, earthquake off the coast of Japan um, that produced that awful, devastating tsunami that we all can remember, the horrific scenes and the the, the poor people who died. One of the odd things from this geological event that had no rhyme or reason, nothing to do with human activities, uh, was that it created scare lobbies in, in Europe in particular around the dangers of nuclear energy. And Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany at the time, in order to boost her own position in Germany, uh, took advantage of that to say, we're going to close all nuclear facilities in Germany in the coming decade uh, in order to take away space from the green lobby who were strident and loud about what the dangers of nuclear was. Uh, As a result, to replace that energy shortfall, uh, in her wisdom, decided that pipelines to Russia, Nord Stream 2 through the Baltic, should replace German energy supplies through, particularly through, through, uh, through gas. And probably that played a role, of course, in Putin's decision to evade Ukraine, <laughs> thinking that certainly Europe, but also Germany in particular, took 60% of its energy from, from Russia, had an impact. So a butterfly flaps its wings in Tokyo or a volcano Bingo. explodes in Iceland Bingo. or elsewhere, and we get massive political consequences that no one can predict. Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. This brings us to the plague of Justinian. As a man who's specialised in the past in Byzantine history, I, I know you're extremely well-versed in this. It's recorded that in the year five. 36, the historian Procopius, who was in the court of Justinian in Constantinople, he recorded weird behaviour in the sky. He recorded that the sky dimmed for the better part of a year. The sun gave forth its light without brightness. Four years later, four years after that observation, the city of Constantinople was utterly devastated by the arrival of the plague, which wiped out anything from a third to a half of the city's entire population. Can we draw a connection between this weird phenomenon in the sky and mass death, bloody death in the streets of one of the world's great cities at the time? Well, so in the 530s, there's a sequence of volcanic eruptions, probably more than one. Procopius is describing something that's happening uh, atmospherically, and we find reports noting similar things in in sources in Japan, in Korea, in 
uh, parts of the Middle East too. And uh, probably it's, it's two or three volcanic eruptions. Everything matters with the volcano when it erupts in the year. Also the latitude and it's, uh, the explosivity uh, of how much matter is ejected into the air. But what, what happens at this particular time is that a lot of particles are put up into the atmosphere that, that weakens the sun's rays. That's what Procopius is talking about. And if you remember your biology from school, dear listeners, um, you'll remember that photosynthesis requires water and sunlight to make plants grow. And any variation uh, on in that pretty simple combination can dramatically impact crop yields. So there's a sequence of things that happen as a result. One is that um, you have lower agricultural productivity, lower calorie consumption is, is closely correlated towards um, impacts on your immune system. Right, so people are weaker to begin with. Weaker to begin with. But it looks like what also happens is that when there are these changes in the natural world, uh, organisms can also impact too. And in this particular case, Yersinia pestis allows, which is the, 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 the plague virus, something seems to happen that provides an acceleration that pushes this forward. And it's not the first time that's happened. The smallpox virus, for example, is unlocked by the eruption of Santorini, this island in the Mediterranean that is most famous for uh, devastating the island of Crete about 1600 BC. More significant than that was the fact that the trigger at that point was to change the variola virus, which is what underpins smallpox. And smallpox, since 1900, killed 300 million people. So disease is often correlated to these big climatic events. And what happens in the um, 6th century that we're talking about is that the combination of high levels of whatever you want to call it, globalisation, trade networks and so on, allows people and goods, ideas, but also disease to spread very, very quickly. And again, we learned that unfortunately, with the pandemic the other day, that being able to buy your laptops and get things made in one part of the world also means that everywhere's 18 hours away from being infected with a, with a virus. I've read a paper that said that an Icelandic volcano ejected a lot of that stuff into the sky, it cooled the earth, cooled Africa, and allowed rats containing the flea that contained the Yersinia pestis to scuttle up the Nile, make its way to the port cities in Alexandria, and that's one of the reasons, it's the cooling of the earth that uh, helped deliver the, the plague to the Mediterranean. Yeah, the poor rat probably gets more blame than it deserves for this and also for the, for the Black Death, but, but because there are all sorts of ways in which things can, which the pathogen can be transmitted, including on clothes, including in foodstuffs. Um, but the rat's just the bus, isn't it, that's the driving the, 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 rat, the, the bacterium. The rat is the bus. And in right. fact, if we had longer, I would tell you there's a fantastic article about rat bones and how the rat that inhabits Europe changes as a result of this one. But the, the, the consequences of Justinian's plague are huge. First, there's a population loss in Europe, probably around about 40% which, um, to put into a scale, if that had been the same with our pandemic, we'd have lost three or four billion people globally rather than, you know, seven. That's what the WHO says, double it if you like, seven million people. So the scale of population loss is, is huge. Some of my colleagues are very very argumentative about that, thinking maybe the, the mortality rates are much, much lower. But we start to find plague, in fact, um, not just before Procopius says it reaches Constantinople, we find it in rural villages in England miles away from big population centres before it reaches Constantinople. Oh, I had no idea. And, of course, the plague does this thing. It kills newborn babies and the worst, most vicious criminals alike. So the world suddenly seems like... People feel like they're living in a time of moral disorder. 
at the time, as well as as, as well as this terrible plague. Well, so that's a, the anxieties about uh, the apocalypse and you know punishment from God or the fact we're all doomed are, are as ancient as written written texts, and and absolutely, and not surprisingly, people's anxieties around understanding why there's sudden mass mortality is crucial. I guess in the longer run, what happens as the result of the pand- of, of this pandemic is that lower population sizes reduce levels of connectivity, reduce levels of, of trade. One of the most interesting, important examples of what happens next is, is in Scandinavia, which I know you know very well, where um, the population losses combined with the collapse of trade markets and networks means that over the next 150 years, there's a consolidation of land holdings by small numbers of people. You can buy land cheaper if there are fewer people around. If there are few people around to work it, then if you're a super owner, you can you can mop up. And that is, seems to be crucial in the emergence of what's called the Viking Age. Oh my God. So right. it's funny how the, the these these things fall, isn't it? It's it's not like a row of dominoes. I don't know, it's like it's like a, a domino topples hits another one, but then it sort of rotates forty-five degrees and knocks off an, another bunch of dominoes. It seems completely unpredictable. Well, and likewise, you see the first you see an adoption, heavy adoption of Buddhism across Asia as a result, because you need explanations. What is happening and why? And if people can provide uh, context and explanations, then new ways of doing things replace the old. So there are these kind of trigger moments to it. And in fact, some, there's, another, there's another volcanic eruption um, about 100 years later in the 620s. And arguably, that's even more important. It doesn't deliver pandemic disease in the same way. But at this particular moment is that the war between the Persians and the Byzantines or the Romans has gone on for decades. And uh, at that moment, the power broker globally are the Turk nomad empire that links from Europe the right the way through to the Pacific. And at this particular moment in the 620s, they are about to inherit the earth because... China is there for the taking. What's the Tang dynasty have just taken power in what's, well, not China territorially, what we think about today, but the kind of imperial part of China, eastern China, under the Tang, exhausted Byzantine or Roman and Persian empires. And the key power broker is the other nomads. And the, the leader is able to extract from the Romans not just recognition of a title, but a marriage alliance with the daughter of the emperor, which is unprecedented. At this moment, uh, uh, a volcano goes off. Uh, in this case, it doesn't. The photosynthesis, the lack of the photosynthesis, uh, causes shortage of fodder on the steppes. Livestock collapse of the herds of sheep and particularly horses that the Turk Empire have, and they collapse. They they and, lose their power. Their well, the funny power. thing is, yeah. they, I mean, I guess it's a funny thing about any political system. Rome, oh, you mentioned the Huns, the Goths. Things collapse very quickly. You know, Russia collapsed twice in the space of a week in the last hundred years. Things collapse really fast. And things that look like they're strong and robust can be blown over by by small things. And so at this point, it could have been that the huge global power that would spread its beliefs, languages, culture across the world would be the Buddhist culture of the steppes. And in fact... Because of this, the doorways opened up for a new voice. And that new voice is coming from the Arabian Peninsula, spread by Muhammad and his followers. And that spreads Arabic into North Africa, across towards the, into Central Asia and the Himalayas. But were it not for a series of other factors, the world might have looked very, very different. Yeah, the, the biggest empire the world had ever seen suddenly emerges, led by the most unlikely people you would, they would have thought at the time of the Bedouin Arabs. But in fact, the time for the steppe world comes... 600 years later when the Mongols do the same thing. So these, these pulses and waves are never explained by climate or by changes, but it's, I think it's not, not possible to write about them without factoring it in. 
We have this era called the Little Ice Age, which occurred roughly around the middle of the 1500s, roughly until 1800, so just a couple of hundred years ago or thereabouts. And global temperatures dropped, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere. What do we think caused that? Was it solar radiation of uh, solar activity or something? What do we think caused this little mini ice? Yes, yeah, so it's, it's become quite popular with historians. I mean, the brilliant Geoffrey Parker has a book called Global Crisis about uh, the 17th century in particular being colder. It's very unusual for there to be periods of consistent cooling or warming in all parts of the world. It doesn't work that way and never all at the same time. And, and that actually, I mean, it's a side, side note, is what makes the current world so terrifying. It's the first time ever that all of the world is doing the same thing at the same time. So 98% of the world at the moment is warming and the 2% that's missing is because we don't have enough data for it. Uh, in the Little Ice Age, this big window of about 400 years, there are some things that are changing. The, sun, the sun's activity is important. There are three periods within this window where there are called solar minima, where there's less coronal activity, less activity by the sun to throw out sunspots that, that have impacts. But it's also to do with volcanic activity. It's also to do with the El Nino and La Nina signal, which is the dominant climate signal on Earth. And these interlocking... It's never just one thing, is it? It's, it's never, just, never one thing. just one thing, right. Like, it would be, like, be too complicated if it's just one thing. But then you have, you know, here in, here in Australia, what matters is the, is the southern annual modular, which is, a huge, which is an important part of the South Pacific systems. And where we are, it's the North Atlantic Oscillation but that also ties in with what's happening in the Pacific. So there's this interlocking web of activities. And actually more interesting in the Little Ice Age is not the fact that it might be or might not be cooler. It's that this is a time of intensive global interactions because in this period is the opening up of trade networks to across the Atlantic, uh, Europe connecting through to Asia and the Indian Ocean. And you know, even within this window, there's a European settlement of... Australia, and that produces pulses of all sorts of cultural borrowings of uh, of ways in which there's intensifications. But from my point of view, one of the things I give a lot of credit to is the 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 shipment of new crops from one part of the world to the other, and in particular the potato. I, think I love about your book, though, Peter, is that sometimes you're capable of touching on some very subtle, seemingly subtle, but quite profound changes induced by this. You say that the ice, this little ice age that happened in this period, and in, in Europe. People went from living in large halls together to living in houses with smaller rooms and corridors, which were easier to heat. And it's from this that emerge emerges our notions of privacy and even intimacy. Gossip. If you're in a little room, you don't get overheard. If you're in a big room with the <laughs> lord, the ruler, the rich guy sitting there feasting, uh, then, then celebration looks very different. Um, but if things get cooler... Then, then there are more practical ways of, of doing things. But I think always there has to be nuance in all of this. It's, I think it's one can very quickly go from going, it was a bit colder, therefore people started to gossip or, or chat <laughs> and have affairs. It's kind of fun, though, isn't it? It's but, kind of fun to yeah. see those, uh, those vague... They're, they're foggy connections, but they're connections nonetheless. But it's they? always about logistics. Yeah. So, for example, with the era of the great British... or the great English Navy being built up, the question is, where does the wood come from? You know, each galleon built under the Tudors, Henry VIII is the kind of the father of the English Navy, really. Each galleon that's built requires 20 hectares of oak. And that doesn't exist in England anymore. So the shipping for the wood is brought from the Baltic regions. And that creates closer connections between England and, and, and Russia, where the ruler of Muscovy, uh, Ivan the Terrible, 
uh, is very interested in what's going on in, in England and vice versa. And the English at that point, trying to find new trade networks, do things like set up the Muscovy Company, to set up the Levant Company, and most notoriously, the East India Company, which is all about how does, how does this little island in the North Atlantic try to find a way of getting the resources that it needs, not just to make money and make profits, which is, I guess, part of it, but the basic stuff. To build uh, the navy, to build to build the navy, to be able to get to be able to arm itself against its European competitors, and that becomes a launchpad for eventually an empire that by 1914 controls a quarter of the earth. It seems that in the 20th century, in particular, I know you see bits of this in the 19th century, but in the 20th century, in particular, it's, it's fascinating to read comments from people like Mao Zedong, Trotsky, and some of the uber American capitalists of the 20th century. And you see it a lot in Australian history, too, from our leaders and business leaders the language of conquest of nature. It is the role of man to tame nature, to harness it, to be man is to master. Nature. This seems like a very 20th century thing, Peter. I guess it's it's a combination of lots of things. It's more speculative, I guess. One, I guess, what, what I suppose is the triumph of the Enlightenment and the ideas about science, that man can invent its way out of, uh, invent his or her way out of problems, that new technologies will always solve things. And what we probably should have learned is that new technologies solve one set of problems and then create another set. And I bet there's probably something right in that that's, the ingenuity of our species is incredible and, and capable of doing these wonderful things. But there's always a dark side to it. And knock-on consequences that we can't possibly predict, as we found again and again and again. Right. The building of a canal, the building of a dam, the building of this or that. You and I both written about this thing. We're both about the same age, you and I. We came of age, came out of high school sometime in the 1980s, at a time when the world looked like it was caught in the cycle of mutually assured destruction. This was the only thing that was keeping the world safe from nuclear annihilation. I grew up, I came into, out of high school thinking I wouldn't live to see 30. I really thought that. I really honestly thought that. You had that same thing as well. How do you think our generation in particular, us Gen Xs, have uh, taken on board that knowledge and what subsequently happened in the world when the Cold War came to an end? Yeah, well, you know, it's a, it's a sobering one, I think. Before the pandemic... In fact, when we were here last, you know, thinking about the world, how it was changing and the rise of Asia for the opportunities and challenges that provides for all sorts of different ways for people in different countries in Asia, but also here in Australia. Um, you know, I suppose what we'd have said is that these last 30 years have been a time of intensive globalization and, and great levels of cooperation. But now, uh, off the back of the pandemic, off the back of um, the war in Ukraine, Russia's invasion what China looks like it's doing in the footprint of, of, of the Australian backyard. and um, The world looks like a scary and difficult and fragmenting place where it looks like we fun fundamentally misunderstood what's going on. So, you know, I did something last week, in fact, in uh, Samarkand with um, Fiona Hill, who is Trump's lead uh, National Security Council on Russia. And you know, one of the questions we were asking is, did the Cold War even ever end? You know, when we were so elated by the fall of the Berlin Wall, by liberation of Europe... The by, end of the nuclear standoff. Yeah. yeah. That looked like the, that Putin's Russia was one of oligarchs who, who had their price, who could be bought off under the right consequences. And many of them had property in central London. So we thought there'd be never a chance that there would there'd be leverage if Putin ever did something silly. And in fact, never, he, he never would because he needed our, our dollars to be able to, you know, to fund his regime. And now it looks like we, we misjudged that. And if you start to look back at the last 30 years, I guess, a bit more critically, you say, well, well, it wasn't for lack of trying, but, you know, Iraq turned out to not be a great set of 
options or executions. Afghanistan, likewise. Uh, Syria, Assad now back rehabilitated by large parts of the world, if not by all of ours. Coronavirus, we weren't ready for pandemic. We handled it very badly. We wasted a lot of money. But, you know, we, we put the ship right in due course. But if we had done a little bit of thinking about it beforehand, we wouldn't have been in that problem. Uh, we've got inequality, obviously, slightly wrong. In cities like Sydney, an unacceptable number of people living in, and particularly children in positions where they're not fed, not clean, you know, and in developed rich countries, that's not right, that our governments have failed us in those kinds of ways. And that's not an Australian story. We have that in the UK. 100,000 children go to school every day in London, hungry. And and so looking back, we think, what do we do in these last 30 years, apart from, from reduce the price of flat screen TVs and laptops, uh, cheap flights? How, how, did we, how did we sell the family silver to burn everything we could? And, you know, David Wallace-Wells from the New York Times, uh, you know, reminds, quite sobering, that 50% of all the carbon burnt by human beings has been burnt since, well, he says, I think, since the first episode of Seinfeld, let's let's use something more local, but Shane, Shane Warne's ball of the century. <laughs> since that point, right. with the late, great Shane Warne... So um, we're talking, what, 1990? Since the first carbon. episode of Seinfeld went to air, half of the carbon, carbon in human history, in human history has been burnt since then. And it's because we got access to Russian oil and gas. Western capital went in to make the, the process more efficient, and China opened up as a result. China was terrified by going the same way that the Soviet Union had. So it liberalized to bring in expertise and money into the Chinese markets. So that produced, made China into a kind of factory of the world for the last 30 years, uh, for, for good and for bad, I guess. And, and so these last 30 years, we kind of slept walk into a world where we suddenly think, oh my God, we spent everything, not just, not just environmentally and, and carbon wise, but we, we, we sort of went onto autopilot. We went into sleep mode where we didn't think that the fact that letting China be the factory of the world or helping China become a global factory. We were the rich kids who blew the inheritance. Well, it, was, it was great. You know, it's we were the great rich kids for, that blew the, the inheritance. The Chinese government will right. tell you, great for mm. poverty in China, poverty alleviation has been a great transition. But now that means that Chinese People's Liberation Army has a navy that's bigger than the United States Navy. And that, that suddenly looks very threatening rather than having thought things in, through in advance. So since, since you and I were born, Richard... Uh, the amount of energy that's gone into the atmosphere, and it's not just on the Earth. In fact, in the ocean, it's more significant. The amount of heat added to the ocean, in the report that was published last, last week, is the equivalent of 25 billion Hiroshima bombs of heat put into the water, into the oceans. So last year alone, we added 10 zettajoules of heat that is absorbed by the ocean that creates acidification. That's the equivalent of energy to make 700 million kettles boil every second. And, and that comes from the fact that you, we've, we've spent without thinking what the cost is. Seems to me that if there is a message, I mean, there's many messages or many points of information in your book, but it seems to me the important message of your book is this, and correct me if I'm wrong, the crisis is just about upon us or is upon us, the most resilient and adaptive societies will be the best ones to deal with it. Is that about right? Yeah. Don't take my word for it. That's, that's history. That's the lesson of history. Here. I mean, where's Uruk today? Or Nineveh? Or Merv? Or, or Baghdad? You know, great cities, great civilizations. They don't fail because, um, you know, everyone else is cleverer than they are. It's all about adaptation. So we talked about, the, I mentioned the fall of Akkad, the curse of Akkad at the start. Akkad fell. 
but others didn't at the same time suffering the same conditions. Well, in fact, in fact, Sargon. I mean, as you, it's such a great, it's such a great quote you read, read at the beginning. Uh, Sargon is, is a kind of Donald Trump of the Mes- of Mesopotamian world. <laughs> but Naram Sin, despite the fact that he has this curse of Akkad, and there, there are all these signals, as you mentioned, magnesium spikes and um, f- fossilized pollen that we can see that something is happening. Uh, his grandson Naram Sin, who's supposedly punished by the gods, actually reboots himself and gets back up on his legs and carries on standing. But all of these things that have happened in history, the kind of rise of Venice, which is a beautiful city to visit, but it's not the global financial centre anymore. History tells you always about the, the the need to be at the forefront and to be understanding what the risks that you face are. And right now, I think that there's no place on earth that doesn't face uh, mega risk in terms of what it should be thinking uh, about adaptation for the future. And a lot of it is to do with planning. Again, the coronavirus tells us something important about that. If we had prepared in a better then we'd have coped with it better. We'd have spent much less money. So science and technology will provide lots of mitigation for some of the problems we have, but it probably won't solve all of them or or quickly enough. So working out what the breakdown points are, what the costs are, what the risks are, uh, it's probably worth quite a bit more effort than than's going at the moment. Sometimes writing history can be a bit like looking upon a spilled bowl of spaghetti on a table and trying to figure out exactly what's going on <laughs> with it and trying to understand what exactly happened with that catastrophe and, and how it happened. As an historian, and a very distinguished one, what's your view? How, how optimistic are you of human ability to, to deal with the, the kind of crises that we'll be dealing with in the, in the near future? Well, look, at the moment, across Southeast Asia... So not China, not India, Southeast Asia, you know, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, the air quality is so bad that 99% of that whole region has a one and a half year lower life expectancy than if the air was clean, right? And uh, that's that's pretty brutal. That's that's a function of the way that which we've decided to live. That's because of forest clearances, that's forest fires, that's, uh, you know, more people in Afghanistan in 2017 died from from air quality pollution than from terrorism or combat injuries. Indonesia's relocating its capital to a place that's not likely to be inundated. It's sinking, Jakarta, so it's relocating well, so its so capital. New York City has gone mm. down, has sunk 30 centimetres in the last 50 years, right? So, and that's not because the sea level rises, that, that's going to come towards us too. But, you know, right now, the North Pole um, is three and a half degrees warmer than it was 20 years ago. And that that pace of change is why scientists are saying that we're not coming to a sixth mass extinction, but we're already going through it. And with all of those things, pollinator loss, when bees die, when veg, you know, vegetation can't get uh, cross pollinated, then 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 there then there are then there are problems. And adaptation is key. Peter, it's been completely amazing speaking with you once again. Slightly alarming <laughs> and fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks today. for having me. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.